So John 13, it begins this section that's been called the farewell discourse. The farewell discourse is at least chapters 14 through 17. But some suggest it begins here in the upper room, and it goes even as far as chapter 18. Uh, Chapter 13 is also known as the upper room discourse because the setting of chapter 13 is this upper room where Jesus and his disciples share this Passover meal together. So some of you may have like a red letter Bible where like Jesus speaks and like those letters are in red. If you're looking in John right now, this section has more red than any other section in John's gospel. So this is just Jesus and he just starts talking. And you remember, we're, we're in the last week of his life, and so chapter 13 is really like Thursday, so we're looking at like two days here, one day. And so this, there's not much movement between chapter 13 and chapter 18. It's just him really giving his last kind of farewell speech to his disciples, which is why it's called farewell discourse. So... Let's turn our attention to John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, And that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand why I, what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also Ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me, the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. 
and testify, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I have said to the Jews, so now I'll also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why, can't I, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the roaster, the roaster, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray together. Father, you are amazing. Your plans are so wonderful. And Lord Jesus, may we be in all of your humility that you would bow down to clean our feet. That the king would humble himself and become a servant. Lord, may we be in awe of who you are. I pray that you'd convict us of sin that we have that maybe we've never seen before. Lord, help us to be faithful to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What would you do if you knew you were going to die in less than a week? You know, that's a way I think we should often be thinking, because none of us are guaranteed another week, so we should often be thinking, how shall I live out today. But if I'm guessing if we knew we were going to die in a week, many of us, we would turn inward, right? Like maybe you would run up as much debt as you can and just take some trips and buy some things. You might party hard. You might try to check off as many things, the boxes off your bucket list. But Jesus, he knew that his time had come, and yet he turns to serve others. 
As we march closer and closer to the cross, everything from this point on, from John 13 on, is leading us directly to that moment when, when Jesus would be crucified for our sins. I mean, think about this for a moment. In John chapter 13, Jesus knows he is dying tomorrow. It's Thursday, Friday's coming. Thankfully, Sunday is coming as well. And he stops to wash the feet of the disciples. Just let that sink in for a moment. You're on your way to death. And you decide to stop and wash the feet of the disciples. Chapter 13 highlights these two friends of Jesus. I mean, they're all there, but here are these two. One's a true friend. One is a fake friend. Both individuals trouble Jesus, but one relationship survives. The other does not. Have you ever been hurt by a friend? Maybe someone close to you has betrayed you. If that's you this morning, be comforted. Know that your Savior knows what you're going through or have gone through. In verse 1, verse 1 gives us a marker for Tom. Verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world um, to the Father, having loved his own who were already in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So we, we see the measure of Jesus' love here. He loves his own to the end. His love was not fickle. He, he showed them steadfast love until his final breath. He was faithful. Then in verse 2, we're reminded that there's a deeper evil at play here. Verse 2 says, During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So this is not the first time in John's gospel where we find out about Judas' betrayal. Jesus mentioned it the first time back in chapter 6. He knew that it was coming. We've known that it's coming. We find out in verse 2 that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas. Now that is a really challenging statement. In chapter 13, the role of Satan involved in Judas' life, it's really highlighted more so than anywhere else in John's gospel. John brings this up a few times, so I'm going to wait until we get to it a little bit later and to just address it all at once. We also see in verse 2 that Judas is identified by his father, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. This is a very common way for the Jews to delineate between one another. As I I was preparing for this, like I, I've read this account many times over the years, and, but for some reason, the dad, Simon, really stood out to me. I mean, could you imagine how excited this dad must have been? Um, at least should have been when he found out that his son was a part of Jesus' disciples. I mean, how cool is that? You know, people coming up, oh, you know, hey, Simon, you know, what, where's Judas? I haven't seen him in a while. Oh, he's, you know, you haven't heard? He's... He's one of Jesus' disciples. Yeah, he spends all his time with Jesus from Nazareth. But then poor Simon goes from that moment of being like this proud father to being the father of the one who betrays God. I've always just thought how hard it must have been for, like, for Judas to betray. You know, we see the fruit of Judas, like the shame and guilt afterwards. He takes his own life, but... I've never really thought about how his own family must have felt 
how they dealt with you know, this betrayal of Judas. And though I'm guessing the family was probably shocked, Simon was probably shocked to find out what his son had done. Uh, we know that from verse 3 that Jesus was not shocked. Look down at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So Jesus knew all along what was happening. He was not shocked. And knowing what was about to happen, he, he laid aside his outer garments, poured water into a basin, and began to wash disciples' feet. This is absolutely insane that he would do this. I mean, what other world leader has humbled himself to such a servant act? Not Muhammad, no record of Muhammad or Buddha, but Jesus, the creator of all creation, humbles himself to this lowly, subservient task now, most of us, we probably don't pay much attention to our feet, do we? You just take them for granted. Um, feet are often neglected. They could smell funky. Maybe have toe jam. But think about how much worse first century feet would have been. You know, we have all these, you know, you can get a pedicure. You've got, you know, wear socks, closed-toed shoes. But think about first century. They wore sandals, walked on mainly dirt roads. No cars, so animals would have been the means of transportation, which means you're walking around on dirty, dusty, dodging, dung-type roads, okay? And when you go to a house, you'd have to have your feet washed off before you could go in. Cleaning feet was a lowly job. I mean, how many of you even today would want to wash each other's feet? Well, I have good news for you. This morning, we're going to have a foot washing service. We're each going to wash each other's feet. Some of you don't know to be nervous, to go use the bathroom right now. I'm kidding. We're not doing that today. But many churches do this. How many of you have ever been a part of this? I've seen a lot of churches do this over the years. It was a lowly job, and Jews typically did not do this job. It was at least a Jewish male would not do this job. And so now the designer, the creator of all feet, is now stooping down to wash these nasty, stinking feet. Jesus was showing them that he had come not to be served, but to serve. In just a few hours, he would humble himself and serve them yet again through his death on a cross. But not every disciple agreed with what Jesus was doing. In verse 6, Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter must have known, like, don't, you don't want to, no, don't touch my feet. They're nasty. Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. I mean, how many of you can identify with Peter? Like, I, I, I can. I mean, for many reasons here. One, like, yeah, I don't want you touching my feet. 
Two, I think second reason, like I, I, I don't like when people, when they do things for me. If you do something for me, there's this, I think it's sinful, it's fleshly. I think there's this innate desire in my heart to want to now do something for you. You know, I want to pay it right back. I don't want to owe you anything, right? So I'm going to pay it right back. See, Peter has this kind of belief, like, God helps those who help themselves. And that's a lot of, like, our culture. You know, that's not in the Bible. That's not a, I didn't just, I didn't, that God helps those who help themselves. That's not a verse, okay? And there's two ways that that phrase kind of trickles into our thinking. First, you just don't like to be served by others. You, you feel maybe too embarrassed, too dirty for someone like Jesus to help you. You know, Jesus, I don't want you to see where I've walked. No, 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 you, you, you cannot take care of my own. You know, you can't wash my feet. I can take care of, care of my own feet. I, I don't want you to do it. I got this, Jesus. It's, I'm too embarrassed. Some of you, you think of God that way. Like, I, I really don't want to come to God. I don't want to give my life to him because I have to expose what I've done. I'm too embarrassed. I have a lot of shame, a lot of baggage in my past. The second way of thinking about this is I can take care of my own feet. That's, that's a different heart, meaning I don't need your help. I am not that filthy. I am not that dirty. So maybe that's you this morning. You feel like, I don't need, I don't need Jesus to wash my feet. I, they're not that bad. Look at them. Pretty good. They don't, they don't stink. It's somebody else's feet. It's not my feet. Jesus answered Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Will you allow yourselves to be washed by the only one in the entire world who can truly cleanse you? See, Jesus is our Lord and Savior, but he is also our servant. Doesn't that sound and feel a little strange that Jesus is my servant? Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. This washing is necessary. If you want eternal life, it's not an option. This is a requirement. You must be clean. Simon Peter said to him in verse 9, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter realized, like, I, I, need, I need this. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need, a, need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. The point here is not the depth of Peter's sin. The point is the necessity of Jesus' sacrifice. He had to die. But surely there's something complicated that we must do, right? It can't be just as simple as Jesus washing us. Surely the blessing of God is only received by carrying out some difficult task, some profound truth that we've got to grab a hold of. Surely we must have to work hard and prove ourselves to God, right? No. If you want to receive God's blessings, then you have to allow Jesus to wash you. In this humble act of Jesus washing the feet here, there's this picture of salvation. There's no other way to heaven but through the basin and the towel of Jesus. This humble act is pointing us to another humble act, the cross. 
At the end of verse 10, Jesus says, And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Think about that room for a moment. You know what's crazy about this? Is that of the feet that Jesus washed, Judas was a part of that group. Have you thought about that? Judas was in the room. Jesus is washing all these feet. Jesus knowing what's going to happen with Judas. And Jesus washed the feet of one of the disciples that he knew was getting ready to betray him. I mean, who does this? Who is this God-man, Jesus? At this point, Judas has an alliance with Satan, but Jesus still stoops before him as a humble servant and slowly washes the funk off Judas's feet. I'm curious, what would you have done in this moment if you were Jesus and you knew that this guy was about to betray you for some financial gain? Would you have washed Judas's feet? You know, you're going around, there's Peter. Well, not yet. Peter's still. You got John, and there's James, Nathaniel, and you're washing, then you get the Judas. You're like, oh, Judas. And what would you do? Olivia's, Olivia's not here this morning, um, but she loves getting pedicures. It's one of her favorite things to do, and most of the time she really enjoys them. Now, occasionally, um, she'll get somebody maybe that's new, and they have apparently the scraper thing, I think, for like calluses. And like, um, if you don't know what you're doing, you can really hurt someone. And so sometimes she, you know, she's like, eh, it was fine, but it was, you know, a little rough. I think I would have used that tool on Judas, if I'm being honest. You know, Judas would be screaming like, hey, I, I don't remember you using that on John. It's like, well, you know, you're getting the special treatment. You're special. But, she, but Jesus washes the feet of Judas. I mean, how crazy is this? This is the type of Savior that we have. I want us to reflect for a moment on the presence of Judas, just being in that room. I want his presence to serve as a warning for us. That you can be outwardly present in a Christian gathering... And it's not enough to guarantee your salvation. You think about it. Judas is there, hanging out with them. He's been there for months, years possibly. And I just think about all the people who hang out with Christians and enjoy the common grace that you would have being around Christians, that Christian community, but you don't have a relationship with Jesus. We must come to Jesus in repentance and personal faith, not in our faithfulness to church service. You're coming to a Sunday morning or Sunday night youth group, Tuesday night campus collective or whatever other program event, that does not save you. Hanging out with Christians does not save you. What saves you is repenting of your sin, allowing Christ to wash you, make you clean. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what you have to do or what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. 
If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me, the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. So by washing their feet, Jesus was not abandoning his authority. I think sometimes we can think, if I humble myself to that task, then they won't respect me. And some of you, I think, maybe in your workplace, you kind of have this feeling, well, I, don't, I can't do that because then these, my, you know, these employees won't respect me. We should not interpret Jesus' love as a weakness. He has all authority in heaven. It's a lot of authority. And on earth, his power is immeasurable. Don't equate serving with weakness. In this section, Jesus gives us the reason why he's doing this. He says he is giving us an example to follow. As he serves, so should his followers serve one another. Is your life marked by a life of servanthood? Is that how people would describe you? Do you pour out your life for the sake of others? Now, some of you, you're maybe naturally wired this way. Um, in fact, you do this for a living. I've always um, found it interesting, no matter what church I go to, I will find two occupations among the congregation. Any guesses? I heard teachers. I think I heard whisper. Yeah, nurses. Yeah. Teachers in, like, medical field. Like, both of those, like, you're just always pouring out. You're, you're serving others. You both have this thankless job. And Jesus, he shows us what the kingdom of God looks like here. Philippians 2, verse 3 says this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. What would it look like if we could just live out this one verse? If you would count others more significant than yourselves... How much better would the world be? Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Then Paul here, in verses 5 through 11, he gives us an illustration or an example of verses 3 and 4. So he says, you know, count others more significant than yourselves. And then he gives us this example. Have this mind, or maybe some of your Bibles say attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So here's the example. It's Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this is how Jesus showed that in that moment you're more significant, that he humbled himself to die on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every niche, um, should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What an upside-down world is the kingdom of God. It's so different than how most of us think. I'm guessing this is the only example where we see the superior washing the feet of an inferior. I mean, this is radical. And Jesus is calling us to serve others just as he has done for us. In verse 17, he even says that you will be blessed if you do them. I'm guessing the blessing that we would receive would be unshakable joy, not, you know, financial gain. This is not I scratch your back, you scratch my back. It is fun to serve, to lay down your life for others. We don't serve others so that we get something from Jesus. When I come across verse 22, I think it's one of the scariest verses in the entire Bible. Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Then these 12 men look around at one another. This is what scares me. Uncertain of whom he spoke. You know, there's a part of me, like, I just think of Judas it's like they always was like suspect. You know, like they're hanging out with him and this whole time they're like, why did Jesus pick him? He's so obnoxious. Like he's always by himself. But it seems like that's not who Judas was, or at least he was really good at tricking everyone. They were uncertain of whom Jesus spoke about. I find that frightening. These guys, they knew Judas. They knew him so well, and they did not expect. None of them expected it was him. As a pastor, this is terrifying that I can get to know you, serve with you. You may even have a role in this church, but may not actually love Jesus. That's just it's terrifying. Well, this conversation that Jesus had me, it made Disciples, they were curious. In verse 23, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who, who is it? Now, for those of you who've been coming, been following along in John's gospel, John often speaks about individuals this way. The author, John, he'll often leave people nameless. Um, he doesn't want to make much of these individuals. He wants to make much of Jesus. So here, you know, um, he kind of does the same thing. And we've seen this a pattern. You know, there was a man who was born blind. He doesn't give us the man's name. Or There was a woman. We, we don't know her name. We never do. Well, now John does the same thing with this disciple. In verse 23, he says, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. John does not mention the disciple's name. Now, this might not catch your attention, 
Um, especially if John here was talking about Peter or Andrew or James or Nathaniel or any other disciple. But from context of how this phrase is used in this gospel, it seems like the author John is the unnamed gospel. So he kind of goes third person here. And he says, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. At first glance, this has come across as like, a, like John boasting. You know, hey, I'm the one that Jesus loves the most. Like John's vanity plates would be, you know, the one whom Jesus loved. Or that would be like his Twitter handle. Or, you know, just want to let you all know I'm really important. Of all these important men, Jesus, I'm the one whom Jesus loved. But I, I think it's better to understand that John is trying not to draw attention to himself. That's why he doesn't mention his name. He doesn't name drop here. He stays generic just as a way to show that he's simply another person whom Jesus loves. I mean, Jesus loved all the disciples. So this disciple, probably John, he leans back. And this is not, don't picture like, like the Lord's Supper, you know, that famous painting where they're all on one side of the, this is, they're, they're, they're not in chairs. They're just laying down around a small table. And so he leans back, and it's like, Jesus, who, who is it? Come on. You can tell me. And so Jesus does. Jesus answers, and I don't, we don't know how loud he answers back. I don't know if there's conversation going on. It's kind of loud in that room. But Jesus tells this disciple, who I would say is probably John, Jesus answers in verse 26, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Now what's crazy about this is John may have been on one side of Jesus and Judas may have been on the other side of Jesus. We know that Judas was at least near to Jesus because it says, so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas. So he, he just gave it to him. The son of Simon Iscariot, which the dad's like, please, like, don't bring me up again. This is hard enough. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Okay, so here's that language again where Satan entered him. What in the world is this? Well, it's, it's pretty interesting when you're studying all four Gospels. When you read the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will see a lot of demonic warfare, a lot of demonic encounters, demon possessions. But have you noticed in John's Gospel, we haven't found any. There's not been one single account of this kind of stuff. It's almost like John wants us to see all this portrayed through and in Judas. Here's a man who walked, talked, lived with Jesus for a few years. Yet he walks away from the one who makes everything make sense. So what does it mean for Satan to enter into someone? One author writes this. It at least means this. It can happen. In Judas' case, Satan so took charge of his personality and his will that it could be said that Judas became Clothes animated by Satan's desires. 
a puppet on the devil's strings. Do not play with evil things. There is a devil and there are evil spirits. The occult, witchcraft, and Satan are not to be toyed with. The great tragedy in the scene is that, at least in principle, Judas could have re- repented up to this point, but now the die is cast and it is too late. There can come a moment when you um, are so hardened, you harden your heart to the truth of God that the course of your life is set. Be careful when you say no to Jesus and yes to evil. There may come a time when you can no longer say yes to Jesus. It's pretty frightening. Jesus tells Judas to quickly do what he was about to do. But no one at the table knew why he said this to him. In verse 29, John gives us some options from what other, the others thought Jesus meant. Verse 29, some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, go buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. It seems like the disciples do not think that Judas is going to do anything different than go buy some provisions for the Passover or give some money to the poor. So Judas just leaves. He takes the bread, but he leaves Christ and the others behind. Then John, very fittingly, as he has done all throughout this gospel, he ends in verse 30 with this play on words, and it was night. Yes, it would have been evening, but this surely um, would be a play on words of light and dark. This would have been a very dark moment for Judas and Jesus. Verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. So what does Jesus mean, a new commandment that you love one another? Uh, This isn't new. I mean, it's been around for centuries. Leviticus 19, verse 18 says, But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what does Jesus mean by a new commandment? See, the cross... The cross turns the page in redemptive history. This new commandment is coming out of this new covenant. This new covenant will supersede the old covenant established with Moses. This is a love shown in the new covenant that is unlike any other love. And how will people know that you love Jesus? By your t-shirts? Maybe your bracelets? They will know that you love Jesus if you have love for one another. See, we can have all the programs a church can offer. We can use all the marketing tactics to engage people. But it will be our love for one another that will lead people to repentance. 
and help them put their trust in Christ. It'd be easier to have programs, wouldn't it? It'd be easier to use marketing schemes. But God calls us to love one another. Now, I'm not sure if Peter heard any of that about the whole loving one another because once Jesus said, yet a little while I'm with you, where I'm going, you cannot come, it seems like that was all Peter was fixed on. Verse 37, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So even though the other disciples will not betray Jesus, they will all deny him. I love Peter's boldness here. He says he's willing to lay down his life for Jesus. Um, in, in reading this week, I, I like how D.A. Carson describes Peter's intentions. Carson says, Sadly, good intentions in a secure room after good food are less attractive in a darkened garden with a hostile mob. It's so true, isn't it? He was willing to die for Jesus while in the upper room, but when things got real in the courtyard, in the garden, he wasn't even willing to stand up for Jesus, let alone die for him. I think this is a good reminder for us all. It's easy to follow Jesus in this room, isn't it? We can sing, raise our hand, praise the Lord. But when we get out there, it's a little harder, isn't it? Stand up for Jesus. But true worship in here should impact our lives out there. If you cannot be committed in this room, you probably won't be committed later. But be encouraged by this. Even though Peter was not committed to Christ, fully committed to Christ, the good news for Peter is that Christ was still committed to him. And if you are one of his little children, then he is committed to you as well. Peter would go on to lay down his life for Christ. You know, he, he, he was honest. Peter was known, historically at least, we don't have a, a verse to point to, but at least historically Peter was known to to be crucified upside down on a cross, kind of making fun of his Savior Jesus. Um, and so Peter did lay down his life. For you this morning, if you are one of his little children, then you need to know that he will not lose you. You are his, and no one can snatch you out of his hand. Go and love one another as he has loved you. Let your love be made visible by how you serve one another while we wait for our Savior to return for us. Let's pray as the band comes back. Lord Jesus, thank you for this example of love. First, by laying down your life for us. Two, just by serving us by doing something that none of us would want to do for each other. And so, Lord, we come to you asking for help. We need your help to know how to love others better, to love those who are 
honestly not very lovable, maybe like a Judas may have been. Would help us to love that coworker, maybe that person in, in class, maybe even in our home. It's not easy to love. Lord, we thank you for um, your sending of the Holy Spirit, who, who we know can help us. He is the helper, the comforter. So Lord, help us to leave today with a desire to serve one another, to love one another. And may we be willing, just as Peter, to lay it all down for you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.